Hi, I'm Joe Sheeran, and welcome to the Dealmaker series. This podcast highlights some of our most interesting deals by talking to the entrepreneurs and the dealmakers behind them. Today, I'm joined by Mark Taylor, one of the shareholders of InExpress, a global shipping solutions franchisor. And we're also joined by Christian Mayo, the partner who led the deal. Hi, guys. How are we doing? Hi, Joe. Really Morning. good. Excellent. So, Mark, last year InExpress was sold to U.S. private equity house Hudson Hill Capital. It would just be great to hear a bit more about you, InExpress, and what led you to deciding to sell the business? So, my professional background is in franchising. Uh, I've been on the British Franchise Association board, and I currently sit on the International Franchise Association's international committee alongside the likes of mcdonald's burger king kfc and uh hilton hotels etc etc so all that experience has uh, brought me to the position within express where they approached me and asked me if i join as the ceo because my franchising background prior to that i've been working with private equities buying and selling franchise businesses accelerating the growth and selling them on the difference within express was a privately owned business, very successful, had been going nearly 20 years, had experienced phenomenal growth, was in 14 countries, 20% year-on-year growth, but they had a number of shareholders that were looking potentially to exit the business, not least of which was the chairman and founder, who was in his early 70s and wanted to sail around the world in his boat or yacht, depending on how much money we got out of the deal. Right, so chairman's looking at it sailing around the world, and um, it's 2018. So why did you decide that was the year to really go for it beyond, you know, the chairman himself? So when I joined five years ago, so this would have been 2015, when I look at any business, I always look at what does this business look like in three to five years' time? and who's still there and who's left. And it was very clear from those initial discussions which of the shareholders wanted to leave the business and move on and do the next thing or retire, like the chairman. And so we started strategically on a plan that both improved the performance of the business by getting a management team in place that would be able to carry it forward to the next step of the journey. But we'd been on a rewrite of our software, bringing that in-house. We had been on a process of buying back the master franchises that were operated by third parties in most of the 14 countries. And we were probably looking to sell ideally at the end of 19. And we wanted to give ourselves a good year's run at it, preparation, start looking for the right partner, which ultimately led to KPMG to work with us on that. So ultimately, it sounds like you were deal ready at that time. Um, Christian, just bringing you in, what was happening in the market at that time in 2018? Yeah, so 2018, the market was still very strong. Obviously, we had COVID to come, so the the conditions were going to change rapidly as we went through. And in particular, in in Mark's space, they were a franchising business, and the the US franchise market had, had seen some really strong multiples paid and some really strong appetite. So at the time when we were talking to Mark, it was, you know, it, it was in a space that we knew was really hot, particularly in the US. Thanks, Christian. So, so Mark, obviously the, the decision to sell your business isn't one you take lightly, really. So what was keeping you awake at the time? 
because we'd done a lot of the hard work and I knew that uh, the market was buoyant, which KPMG confirmed, uh, the things that kept me awake were the excitement of doing the deal, to be honest with you, and taking us on that next step of the journey. We had a business that was growing really, really strongly. And I guess the only thing that maybe was at the back of my mind was that this was a privately owned business, family run, and so it wasn't maybe quite as professional as some of the other businesses that I'd worked in before. Um, as an example, when I joined the business, the first they knew how much profit they'd made was when the auditors after the year end handed them the accounts. So it was very much cookie jar accounting. There was no budgeting process and we'd improved things a lot for sure, um, but we knew there was still a lot to do and it was how that would stand up under uh, due diligence. And um, you also had a few shareholders, didn't you? You had to manage expectations on that side of things as well. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, we um, we had eight shareholders. Four of them were major shareholders that, that really were the ones that carried the votes and the deals. And there was a split within that group. So there were two shareholders who were major shareholders leaving the business and two that were wanting to roll 50% of their stock, get a little something out of the sale, but really reinvest back in the business and carry it forward. And so that brought quite a potential tension dynamic between the group because the people who were exiting just wanted the highest value. I won't say at any cost because they were interested and making sure that we were partnering with the right people for the remaining shareholders and staff. But there were also the rolling shareholders who were maybe more strongly interested in who we were going to partner with and the future value in the business. And there were some, as you can imagine, off the record, behind the scenes, hairy moments where, you know, we had to knuckle down and debate discussion between somebody that was offering the highest price and somebody that we really wanted to partner with, knowing that either two major shareholders could block a deal. So it brought a bit of tension there, but uh, it was something that we worked through. We'd worked together for a long time. And I think the thing that made the biggest difference was KPMG did a really good job at analysing and speaking with the shareholders to see what their motives were, making sure that everyone was communicated well with and that everybody's needs were satisfied. And they did an excellent job of doing that. Great. And in terms of the buyer that at that time, I mean, obviously, you had different shareholders having different motivations. How, how did you decide Hudson Hill was the right one to go with? So we did a lot of meetings. Um, this was pre-COVID, so they were face-to-face. -face. I flew out to New York, uh, spent a number of weeks in New York meeting with private equities there, and then came back to the UK and did a, a number there as well. And I have to say, on first impressions, Hudson Hill were not my first choice. In fact, they were way down uh, the list. It was quite funny when we, we met with them, they, they put a brochure in front of us that said they paid a, a huge seven times multiple and uh, I, I nearly felt like saying, well, thanks very much for coming to meet with us today, but I don't think you can afford us. <laughs> so thank, thank goodness I didn't because uh, they ended up being the winner in the end. But the reason we went with Hudson Hill is they differentiated themselves from most of the private equities investors in this way. They were boutique and because they were boutique, they were able to put together a deal specifically for us. They were able to take a, a slightly longer view on the deal. 
So they were looking at up to 10 years investment rather than the traditional three to five, but weren't averse to selling after three to five if the results were there. I was really impressed with the team that they put in front of us. Uh, very sharp guys, Alex and Jason, uh, Alex, Harvard MBA, and that, that came across. They got the business quickly. But most importantly, it was, the, it was the cultural fit and the value that they were going to be able to add. We met Eric face to face, but after that point, having met Eric once, who is the founder of the business and uh, a gentleman of real integrity, used to be uh, the leader of the Michael Dell Family Fund and then set up Hudson Hill Capital. He um, he was the only person I met face to face. Jason and Alex, who we did everything with, I've I've still not met to this day. And they bought the business in November. Um, I'm actually going out to America next week for a board meeting, and this will be the first time I meet with them. But even over over Zoom and Team and over the phone, that the chemistry was there. They were asking the right questions, but it was the value add that they could bring. And that's been proven out post-deal as well, where they're giving a high level of challenge, but a high level of support as well, willing to invest and really take that business forward in a way we, we in and of ourselves, didn't think was uh, was possible. Great. That, that sounds um, really amazing from that side of things. But, you know, you've, you found the buyer is all going swimmingly. Things seem to be, you know, going great uh, in terms of the process and everything else. And, I guess it'd be great to hear from you, Christian, on this point is COVID came in March and it's, you know, what what happened at that point? You know, what was your advice? What were you saying? Yeah, so we were just about ready to go to market. So, you know, all the, all the prep was done, all the numbers were ready. The business had grown fantastically. Market had a number of really positive meetings with uh, the US private equity. Uh, UK private equity was warmed up as well. Um, and then just as we we're ready to go, COVID hit and COVID had you know, a, a couple of very serious impacts. One was the private equity market um, froze um, because it just didn't know what was going to happen, didn't know what was going to happen with you know, global flows of freight, which is where we were predominantly being um, driven in our business. Uh, and also the performance of the business um, dipped because, because of that backdrop. And you can't sell a business if the buyers aren't sure whether they want to buy. And you can't sell a business if um, the profitability of the business has, um, has fallen down from where it was. So we put the process on hold. And it was just a question from there of when was the right time to come back out again. And Mark, from your perspective, you know, what were the yourself and the shareholders thinking as COVID hit? What, you know, how were you strategizing about this? Um, I was terrified. <laughs> One word, <laughs> terrified. I, uh, uh, Winston Churchill's a great hero of mine. One of his famous quotes is when uh, entering into World War II and uh, taking the lead, he said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour. And, you know, we were selling the business. Everything had been focused on preparing for this hour. And the one thing we hadn't planned for was COVID. And I was terrified and I was terrified because it wasn't so much the disease um, itself. It was the government's reactions to it. Everything being locked down meant that shipping containers were backing up in ports. Domestic airlines were not flying. And that's how a lot of uh, our express cargo moves is in the, um, the cargo holds of these planes. 
and nobody knew what was going to happen. And as Christian said, you know, you, you started looking at the borders closing, France and um, South Africa and India going into lockdown, and then we were going into lockdown, and good goods weren't moving. And we could see um, in April we, we hit rock bottom in shipments, just, just weren't moving in reaction. But what's great about the business is we have great MI, daily tracking of volumes but also we've got historics and i look back to the great you know 2008 and what happened then and one of the amazing things about the inexpress business is in a recession it it flattens and then it accelerates growth very quickly so it never takes the traditional step back and then growth and what we found as we started analyzing the numbers there was a very strange dynamic going on from april where all of a sudden the domestic shipment volumes were going through the roof. And we saw very early a trend that people were starting to shop online. And that was starting to, to bolster the business and actually taking it to a new place. And what we did strategically was as soon as it happened, we looked at where our weaknesses were. And the big thing was that a lot of our business comes from walking industrial estates and knocking on doors. And we moved to online training. Now, you just can't overnight do that. We already had a great online training system. But we started doing weekly training sessions with all our franchisees and their sales reps, showing them how to do telesales and bring new business on through online methods. And in fact, new franchisees, one of our proudest moments was when we had met online with a prospective new franchisee, took them through the discovery process about the business, done all the legals virtually through DocuSign, and then trained them virtually, and they were out making money without ever having to leave their house. So we wow. just shifted the way the business was operating. And so instead of being terrified all of a sudden uh we transitioned to being one of the few businesses that was in the market still for sale because everyone else was not selling because of what was going on but we found a real strength in our business and our model that it was resistant to the covid pandemic and what was happening but also improved our business model and so uh much, much to christian's frustration our price expectations increased not decreased <laughs> and and christian just from your perspective taking that taking that on board how did you keep hudson hill um you know keep going with them at, at that point yeah and, and and at that point hudson hill was still an outsider you know been someone market met in in New York. They were on a longer list, but probably weren't near the top of that list. Um, so we were trying to keep everybody warm and trying to keep you know confidence in the process and and keep people warm because once you've got that initial contact, you have got momentum. So the plan was to move forward. As Mark said, it was it was a constant balance of how do you keep the momentum and the the strength you've got in the process because we knew that when private equity came back, they've got to come back really strong into the market because there's so much weight of money that private equity can't stop investing. So we wanted to get the timing right to get out just as the market was opening so that they were going to pay full price um, and, and take advantage of the fact that they'd been starved of doing deals. So that was the you know, the, the constant trade-off. And as, and as Mark said, we had this really interesting <laughs> dynamic of 
you know, short-term underperformance that some people were very nervous might be going on. Because if you think back in, in April, nobody knew you know, what the longer term impacts of COVID was going to be, how long it was it was going to last. But fundamentally, it it was you know, it was going to pass and prove to pass in in express business very shortly. Because by by May, the business was back trading really strongly. And actually, we then had this new dynamic that um, e-commerce flows had significantly stepped up. But the business, as Mark said, was was stronger than before. So even though our sort of short term profitability and you know, everybody had been spooked for a couple of months uh, because of what had happened was a, it was a negative impact. At the point that we got our profitability back, what we'd proven was what a, what a resilient, high quality business this was. Um, and we had this added advantage of um, the e-commerce flows around the world were, were increasing d- domestic flows. So that, you know, in, you know, in hindsight, proved to be you know, the right decision that we were going out and trying to take advantage of being one of the first businesses out um, into the market when private equity was starved of, of deal flow. And then that proved the case because you know, when the deal got done in November, this was one of the first you know, deals of you know, of, of size done in the private equity community um, post-COVID. And since then, there's been a, a feeding frenzy in private equity world as they've been trying to catch up on, on being behind on their investments. So the timing worked out very well. But at the time, it was scary because the call was, you know, have we now got um, back to a normal level of performance and moving forward again? Great. Thanks, Christian. So, so Mark, just from your side, how did Hudson Hill become the ultimate investor from your perspective in the end uh yeah that's really interesting because i i reflect on what um christine was just saying there and if i was listening to this i'd be thinking wow in express we're really lucky <laughs> because they had a business that wasn't hospitality and um i always have the same thought about things like that it's only luck if you can seize the opportunity that's presented to you and I think that really underlies what this this deal was about for me, and including you know Hudson Hill, because um, we had a great business, but we we could have been in a situation where we hadn't been working with KPMG and didn't have great people advising us and didn't have online training in place that we could capitalize on. So to to make the most of the opportunity, you've got to be ready for it. Um, but Hudson Hill impressed me because. Um, they saw that potential in the business too. They could see that this was a a great asset with uh, a great management team that were driven to drive through challenges like COVID. And I think that just enhanced. And we saw that from them as well. Um, Most of the deals I've done, once you get past letter of intent and you go into exclusivity, you you just get picked at. And uh, one thing that just blew me away about Hudson Hill was not only did they stick to everything that they'd said in their documentation, but they, uh, at one point when we were having the management team discussion, they, they enhanced for the management team uh, some of the benefit that they would get dependent on performance that hadn't been negotiated. And Eric, you know, um, looked me in the eye virtually over Zoom <laughs> And said, "This is this is the way we operate, Mark. We we want great teams who are going to be delighted uh, with us." 
but they were asking all the right questions they were giving all the right challenge and between those we were able to come up with a, a really great plan as to where the business could be taken and um, the next stage for us and that was key brilliant brilliant so you had an amazing outcome and you know what a really like to ask a question around now is you know now that you're an experienced deal maker what kind of advice would you give to someone else considering selling their business um i think more than anything else is always be in the process of selling the business so when you're looking at your business is what you are doing adding enterprise value to that business even if it's three five years out and think of it in terms of multiples rather than short-term gains uh, we brought a number of people into uh, advisors and look at the business uh, not least least of which was kpmg to say you know you, you should be doing this so whether you want to sell your business um or not always be thinking about how you're adding enterprise value and then the second piece is always always partner with the professionals you know kpmg added so much value leading up to the deal the actual process of the deal uh, we also used kpmg for our due diligence and um, that's another piece of advice that i would give um, is always try and keep it in the same house there was a professional level of independence because it was due diligence but the coordination of working together kept the energy and the timing of the deal short rather than me having to chase different people it, it was all under the one umbrella whether it be between the us and the uk or between the due diligence team and the corporate finance team that that worked especially well brilliant and christian anything to add from your side um yeah i, I think for, for, for me the uh, and, and Mark touched on it, is we didn't know Hudson Hill was going to be the winner. If we did, if we'd have all started off and have our pound bet. I'd, I'd have thought Hudson Hill might have been 100 to 1 outsider, you know, might, might have been the foyne of a, of a grand national race. So you've, you, you can't leave any stone unturned and you've got to explore everything properly. Um, and we, you know, we, we ended up in this process with you know, a, a lot of interest because it was a very, very high quality business and high quality management team. And you know the price range was probably fifty percent, and the the businesses that we met and their culture and their integrity um, all all differed in 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 their in their very ways. So getting optionality so that the you know, the shareholders of a business can can pick um, the very best thing for them does need you know, work and effort. So just keeping all options open all the way through the process, both in you know in in timing and um, and, and who we spoke to would be one of my observations. Right, really good, really good advice, keeping your options open. So we've only got a few minutes left, so we're just going to do a few quick fire questions with you, Mark, if that's okay with you. Um, obviously, you know, you've realized a decent amount of money. So from that side of things, what was the, what was the first thing you bought? Um, the first thing I bought was actually the first thing my wife bought. So while I was working on, you know, 24-7 Zoom calls and spreadsheets, she was clearly in the background working on things that uh, I found about uh, later. So with a month to go, she announced that she'd put an offer in on a small holding farm. We've got uh, 
children of various ages, the youngest being two, and my wife was brought up on a farm. So the first thing that we did is I think the, the money was wired and landed at something like 10 o'clock on the Monday morning. And by one o'clock, uh, a fair chunk of it, my wife had wired out <laughs> for uh, for the small holding that we uh, now live in. But it's great. She's got a couple of little donkeys and chickens and uh, li- living the dream of uh, back on the farm. Brilliant. The good, the good life, the good life. Um, and at the time, obviously, it was it's still COVID and lockdown and everything else. Um, how did how did you celebrate or how are you going to celebrate beyond the farm, obviously? <laughs> so um, I, I did when the deal actually completed and there was no going back, threw open the doors and ran into the garden and just let out this almighty scream which i think was as much a a a stress relief from all the pressure that you you'd been under and just the the joy that it had finally been done so um apart from that initial one thing that we did do was um at christmas we took the uh the family which was within our bubble and we went and uh, spent Christmas away at Grantley Hall in uh, in the north of England. Spent Christmas there, being uh, looked after, and uh, took took with us an elderly lady who uh, my wife spent some time with and looked after. So it, it, it's nice to celebrate with the family, but also to use the money to give other people experience and help them as well. That that's really key. Um, I should probably mention we. Uh, one of the first things after we bought the house was we we did make uh, a decent sized donation to to a local hospital as well. That was really important to us to you know use that money wisely to help other people as well. So that's how oh, we yeah. celebrate helping others. Yeah, exactly. That that's so nice. That's lovely. Um, so looking looking forward, Mark, what's keeping you motivated over the next few years? Oh, I'm I'm so excited about the future potential for InExpress. Uh, we're bringing on more franchisees than we ever have. We've got great partners with Hudson Hill, and we're only at the beginning of that next uh, journey. Our our revenues are about quarter of a billion at the moment, and we've got a four or five year plan to get to a billion in in revenue. And that wasn't what was in the model. But having sat down with Hudson Hill, we've stretched ourselves and uh, true to their promise, they've put the investment in there. So our team are totally, totally driven and excited about getting to that billion, billion business. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, just just one final thought from you, Mark and Christian. Uh, you know, this has been, it sounds like quite the journey for you both. What's the one takeaway that you, that you're going to take away with you? I think for me, it's a combination of always make sure that you're prepared for the opportunity. So I, m- I mentioned about, you know, making sure that you are doing everything in your business to add value and don't prejudge anybody, whether it is making sure you're working with the right people like KPMG or not prejudging, you know, who sat across the table to you that might be the final purchaser of the business don't ever judge anybody Thanks, Mark. I'd, I'd probably say very similar things joe but that um you know turn over every stone you do do the work to present the numbers in the very best way tell the story in the very best way 
speak to everybody as though they might be the buyer and give yourself the you know, the, the absolute best opportunity because Hudson Hill came you know came from being a, a rank outsider and turned out to be the you know, the very best partner for the business. Great, thanks so much. Well, that's all we've got time for, guys. And I mean, that was just fantastic, really insightful. Thank you both so much for your time. That's it for us today. Please do like, share, comment, and subscribe to this podcast. And I just wanted to say thank you for all your support for our first podcast that was launched last week. I think we've already got 350 downloads, which is absolutely brilliant. We've got a great lineup of deals to feature over the coming months. So we'll see you soon.